Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, everyone. For our returning listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. I think you're really going to like the show today. Now, for those of you who are new to the show, welcome to my pod squad. If you came here because the Pod Save America guys recommended us, the conversation is going to sound very familiar because you've probably already heard it. It's my interview with John Favreau, John Lovett, and Tommy Vitor from Crooked Media. But since you like that podcast, I thought I'd recommend a couple of my favorite episodes of this podcast. A great place to start is our conversation with Alec Baldwin. It was, I think, the only time he's done his Trump impression outside of SNL. Not only did Alec crack us up, he also made us think, because this is a guy with a fascinating story and strong opinions, and as the president might say, a really good brain. Another episode I really liked is with a man named Bill Browder. Now, you may not have heard of him, but his life has really been right out of a spy novel. He was once the biggest foreign investor in Russia until he was kicked out of the country. And then his young lawyer was killed. He has a fascinating, scary perspective on Vladimir Putin and the new Russia. And coming soon, I'm really excited about this. My co-host, Brian Goldsmith, and I will be interviewing Tony Robbins, the great entrepreneur and leadership coach to CEOs and presidents. I can't wait for his perspective on Donald Trump's particular style of leadership. So to all the newbies, please let us know what you think. Just email us at comments at currentpodcast.com or leave us a voicemail. We love getting those at 929-224-4637. You can also reach out to me on social media. I'm at Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram and katie.couric on Snapchat. Phew, lots of social media platforms to keep up with. Anyway, without further delay, here's our show, and thank you for listening. 
Hi, Brian. Hi, Katie. Well, as you know, because you're a real student of podcasts, Brian, Pod Save America is one of the hottest political podcasts in the country right now. It's basically four white dudes sitting around talking about the state of the country and bitching about Donald Trump. Is that a fair assessment? (laughs) I think that's pretty fair. And they would also add that they're trying to figure out how to harness all this progressive anti-Trump energy in a constructive direction. And they know politics like the back of their hands. I mean, these guys have a lot of experience because they're all alumni of the Obama administration, correct? That's right. The three guys you spoke to all worked in the Obama White House. Uh, John Favreau was President Obama's head speechwriter at a very young age. Tommy Vitor was President Obama's national security spokesman. And John Lovett is kind of the funny guy. He helped uh, Obama with the White House correspondence dinners. And he also previously worked as a speechwriter for Hillary Clinton. So they're not just commenting on politics. They actually They really know it. And Dan Pfeiffer sometimes uh, participates as well. He was the White House Communications Director and Senior Advisor for Strategy and Communications. Wow, how do he fit that on his business card in the Obama administration? And John Lovett, by the way, is not the John Lovett you might remember if you're a certain age, the one who said, yeah, that's the ticket on Saturday Night Live. And John Favreau is not the uh, director of Iron Man either or the star of Chef. It's a different John Favreau. Anyway, they're a lot of fun. They have a lot to say, and they're really trying to, as you said, harness the energy that has surfaced in the wake of the Donald Trump uh, presidency. And uh, we had a, a very fun conversation about a lot of things. I quickly took over as the interviewer. It didn't take long because they said, don't you want to ask us any questions? I got, I think they got tired of me or bored with me pretty early on. I, I don't think so. I think everybody's just comfortable with you asking questions because you have a little more experience than they do. Anyway, well, unfortunately, because of challenging technical issues, Brian, you couldn't participate in this conversation. I know you were listening, however, and we're going to be talking about it on the other side and pick apart some of the things that the hosts of this podcast had to say. So enough preamble, let's get to my conversation with the hosts of Pod Save America. John Favreau, Tommy Vitor, and uh, John Lovett. And and Dan Pfeiffer's here, isn't he? No, Dan's not here. Oh, sorry, let me do that again. Okay. Okay. I think we should leave this in. (laughs) (laughs) Where where the hell is Dan? Who cares? (laughs) (laughs) Dan, I love you. Just kidding. Just kidding. So you guys want to go first? Sure, sure. So um, we'll start with uh, Trump's uh, burgeoning relationship with the news media. Uh, Last week, the big news was uh, Trump tweeting, uh, the fake news media is not my enemy. It is the enemy of the American people. My question to you is, how dangerous do you think it is for Trump to uh, to cast the media as the enemy of the American people? Or do you think it's dangerous? I thought you were going to say, how dangerous are you, Katie Kirk? <laughs> I'm very okay, dangerous. In fact, yeah. my nickname is Katie Danger. No, um, I think it is incredibly dangerous. Um, I think we've seen him go down this road, but I think it was a brought to a new level with that recent tweet. Um, It's gotten sort of uh, progressively worse in terms of his relationship with the press. Clearly, he's trying to delegitimize the press just as he's trying to delegitimize the judiciary and the entire electoral process, you know, these democratic institutions, because it gives him more credibility. It makes it harder for people to take criticism of his policies or what he's doing seriously, at least a certain portion of the population. So, 
I find it really uh, depressing, dispiriting. And I think the press is still trying to figure out the media writ large how to handle. And when you talk about the media writ large, of course, you're talking about very bifurcated media organizations because you have the conservative press on one side and a more progressive press. And, you know, I think there are fewer and fewer that can be considered sort of straddling both worlds. So I think people are scratching their heads saying, how do we deal with this as news organizations? How do we regain the trust, if you will, because one thing he said that was accurate in his press conference is the approval rating for the media is lower than the approval rating for Congress. And I think, how do you handle a problem like Donald Trump, to quote, the, you know, the sound of music, instead of Maria <laughs> Van, Van Trapp, Von Trapp or whatever. So I think, <laughs> I don't know what the solution is. I think that the media has to resist getting sucked into these personal battles and have and has to try as much as it can to really focus on the policy positions he's taken and some of the things that he needs to be held accountable for the relationship with Russia and what that means and get to the bottom of that i don't think investigative reporting has ever been so important as it is now and i think that you know, they need to spend less time focused on his tweets and his style and more time focused on the substance of his policies. What do you guys think? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think you see this sort of challenge, which is when Trump says something like, you know, the media is the enemy. I mean, there's nothing that a lot of the press corps likes to do more than kind of navel gaze and discuss their own relevance and role. Right. Um, but at, at yet at the same time, it is important to figure out what you do and how you cover a president who says these things about the press. So I guess the question would be, you know, how do you respond and hold the line against a president who declares the media the enemy while at the same time not letting it distract from the importance of that kind of investigative role? policy role, substantive role. Well, I think, yeah, and I also, you know, I I was thinking it's a great time to do a documentary on the role of the media in, in a democracy and go to a country where there isn't a free press and what that's like and remind people of some of the basic principles that this country was founded on. And I think to your point, too much navel gazing starts to feel like too much navel-gazing. So (laughs) how do you also deal with all this fake news? You know, during the campaign, I had very well-educated friends sending me articles saying, did you see this? And I would be like, where did you see that? This is complete bullshit. And (laughs) my friends would be like, oh, it's all over the internet. So I think that, that the technology has move faster than sort of our ability to consume it with some kind of uh, discernment. And I think, you know, maybe news organizations need to get together so that consumers can know what a legitimate news organization is that adheres to certain principles and practices, you know, almost like a good housekeeping seal of approval. So when they read something, they can appreciate and understand that this has been, you know, double sourced, that it's been edited. Now, of course, the problem is fewer and fewer outlets do that now because of the demand for speed is superseded the demand for accuracy. So, I mean, I think there are all sorts of issues entailed in this conversation. Yeah. And and, and another complicating factor is the the blurring line between fake news and partisan media, because you have 
you know, the former CEO of Breitbart sitting in the most powerful office uh, in the White House right now. And they're sort of this, his hand-picked uh, go-to news outlet who, you know, they had the only seat reserved in the front row at the first press conference. So I'm wondering, how can a press corps work with a White House when they're going to their favorite news sources and there's this clear partisan slant uh, of the press corps that's that's growing. It's not getting more objective. I think it's I getting actively less objective through these Skype interviews and the other things they're doing. No, I agree. And uh, I think that the, the media just has to continue to stay on top of these stories. I think part of the problem is that there was always this fine line between access and accountability. You know, you do a tough interview with a political leader, a president, a cabinet member, and this happened to me in my career. And then you get blackballed by that White House because Mm -hmm. they don't like the hard questions you ask. They didn't like your quote-unquote tone. Um, And that happened to me several times in the past. And I think these networks still, you know, it's this, this kind of struggle because they want the ratings that would come with an interview with a high-ranking official or even the president. But the minute that you really come down on that president, which is hard to imagine not doing in the current administration, you will never have access again. So I think people need to realize uh, these news outlets that they're probably going to have to give up access because already I think uh, the administration recognizes um, publications and networks and whatever who are who are going to be predisposed to be uh, easier on administration officials. Right. I mean, I'm wondering what you think of, you know, there's like this, there's this half hour in the morning, you know, network news show that is hard news. And I feel like at a certain point of time that that half hour has been longer. It's been 45 minutes or an hour. If you watch CBS this morning, it's a little longer. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what your take is on sort of watching that, block shrink over time or the sort of sensational or commercialization of tabloidization of some of these morning news programs. Look at Tommy asking, you know, it's interesting. Well, um, you know, I think about that a lot. I think about that a lot because um, it has shrunk uh, significantly. And I think, uh, you know, the time that is allotted to really serious, important issues has gotten less and less. I think part of it is, you know, with a shrinking audience, you need to appeal to a mass audience. So there's fear, I think, that you're going to turn people off uh, by doing too much hard news. I think Good Morning America started sort of being lighter, and then I think the Today Show sort of followed suit. I think the Today Show has self-corrected to a certain degree. But, um, you know... It's tricky, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, it's sort of some of the same things that these these companies are dealing with, you know, whether it's Under Armour, L.L. Bean or Nordstrom's. Once you get politicized at all, you turn off a big a segment of the population. Right. And it, it's it's tricky, I think. But mm-hmm. I, if I were, you know in charge, I would certainly devote more time to big issues. And they they don't, it doesn't have to all be politics. You know, it could be explaining NAFTA and talking about the controversy of the wall. I had dinner 
I went to a dinner this weekend, and the, the Mexican ambassador to the UN was kind of talking to us about the wall and how humiliating that was for Mexicans and about the fact that many fewer Mexicans are coming to the United States because of NAFTA, because it has been so important to the Mexican economy that many people are staying in Mexico where they can find good jobs. Things like that, I think that we get so sort of caught up in the superficialities of who did what, who said what, the outrageous behavior, the crazy tweet, that we don't really dig into these issues that I think educate uh, and help illuminate some of the big, big policy challenges that we're facing in this country. Um, whether or not they would, you know, abandon a morning show in droves if that kind of uh, thing happened, I'm not sure. But I would like to see much more of it, frankly. Um, do you have a question for us? We just took like the, the first well, guys, five. I have, so. So, I, have, I have so many questions for you guys. First of all, awesome. I know that part of your mission uh, in doing Pod Save America and Crooked Media is to encourage activism. And mm -hmm. I, I'm curious, I, I read a piece in the Times this weekend that said, as liberals and progressives become more politically active and kind of stand up against some of the policies that are being enacted by this administration. Moderate Republicans are being pushed closer to Trump because, again, this, this divide is so intense and the rhetoric is so harsh on both sides. And I'm curious, do you think we're forever going to be a polarized nation, a polarized media? Is there any way to cross this divide at all? Uh, John, I'll, I'll ask you first, and I'd love for the other guys to weigh in. Yeah, we, we were just talking about that article. We're not fans. <laughs> I'm, being, I, I'm being very restrained, uh, but I hate that article with the fire of a thousand suns. Really? Okay, good. Tell me why. And, 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 and not because the question you're asking isn't important, right? Like, I think the question about this polarization is really important, but that article was a bunch of garbage because <laughs> it conflates a bunch of different things. Like, is activism, protest, and Hollywood liberals, are they alienating Trump voters? By the way, you know, first of all, I can't even, I can't. I, the article was so outrageous because it asked these Trump people like, you know what? I used to like Meryl Streep and now I don't even know if I can go to the movies. Shut up. Give me a break. <laughs> and, then all, and then also this guy being like, you know, I, I, I might have supported a Democrat, but then I saw a mean tweet about Donald Trump and now I don't know what to think anymore. I think, I think there's a lot. I think that sometimes you see these, that, that, that first of all, I think that there are people who answer these questions be in a way that they think pundits want them to answer them. Mm -hmm. And they're not speaking to their actual feelings about like what the actual way in which they make decisions about politics are. They're, they're asked a question, are liberals alienating you? And then the answer is very easy to say yes. I don't know. I'm rambling. So what, what, me what, what, what about the Pew poll that showed what 70 percent of moderate Republicans think Donald Trump is doing a good job? Were you surprised by that? Well, so I wasn't because um, since those since they, they they may call themselves moderate Republicans, but they ID as Republicans. And so if your your party ID carries more of a weight than whether you identify as moderate, liberal or conservative. Right. So in that same poll, uh, independents gave him a 35 percent approval rating and a 59 percent disapproval rating. Right. Mm -hmm. So they sort of they kind of 
they shaded it to fit the narrative of the story. The other thing is, you know, the two people or the three people that they interviewed for that story, um, one of them had been in the New York Times before um, interviewed by the same reporter wearing a Make America Great Again hat. And then one of them said that, you know, said that she was more scared of Democrats than Islamic terrorists. So Uh these are not like persuadable (laughs) Republicans. Right. Right. She has a point. (laughs) No, but your larger point, the question about polarization is a good one and and a right one. I think what that article does is it sort of conflates what this is what a lot of analysis has been doing these days trump fans with trump voters and i think those those two groups are different right the trump fans which i think they interviewed a few trump fans in that piece and not just trump voters reluctant trump voters um they are getting their news from fox and breitbart and all these very conservative media sources and sometimes fake news sources and trying to pierce their bubble right and trying to persuade them why Trump isn't good for the country or Trump is lying or Trump is doing X. I think that is extraordinarily difficult and that is a huge problem that we have to deal with. And I'm, I'm not sure how we deal with that because it, it, it's hard to reach people like that who right. are getting all this news like that. We're going to take a quick break to hear some messages from our sponsors and to ask for some messages from you. We'll be right back with more from the Pod Save America team. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. What is crooked media? What is your goal? Is it sort of a Fox News on the left? 
It's not. I mean, I, it's weird because I, I don't want to say that it's Fox News on the left, but I think it is a progress. We want to be a progressive media company um, that sort of inspires activism. Right. And so I think that there is especially there's a younger generation out there right now. And there is a gap between their enthusiasm and their engagement. So you That's have a lot of sure. young people who are who are really excited. They want to do something. They want to get involved, but they don't know how and they haven't been involved in politics before. And maybe we want to sort of maybe bring those tell them in. to vote. That's the start. That's yeah. the start. And, but, and yeah, and one big difference too is that I think we're trying our best to kind of like have like an honest conversation. And look, we we have a very strong point of view. You know, we obviously come from we are Democrats, but you know, we're not. We're trying to do our best to say what we think, how we feel, being honest about that. And but, I don't think that's but true. Of Fox. Just getting back to your initial question, I mean, I think <clears throat> there's certainly the case during the election that there was a lot of people this this show included where the tone was. Donald Trump is an idiot. If you vote for Donald Trump, you're an idiot. Yeah. And that came through loud and clear to a lot of people. Uh, I, we've done a lot of soul searching on that, and I think that was unhelpful to say the least. Um, I think it's your God-given right as an American citizen to say whatever the hell you want about any elected official in in the language that you feel uh, is most appropriate. That said, I don't think we're going to persuade people unless we're being a little more thoughtful about how we talk about yeah, him sometimes. I, I think this is true for liberals, and I think it's true for politicians, too. It's never a good idea to play sociologist when you're talking about voters, right? Because when you talk about, like, people feeling this divide or feeling that they're, like, put upon by, you know, Clinton supporters or the elites or stuff like that, it's right. it's people—we often talk about people like they're this, like, we're, like, anthropologists studying an ancient culture. Like, right, we're like what are the white working class voters think? Like Where Sir do they Richard go to- Attenborough with a pair of binoculars. <laughs> and like, look, and, and politicians have done that for, like, Obama has done that a few times when he did the guns and religions comment. Like, Hillary Clinton did that with deplorables. Like, it is never a good idea to talk about voters. Right? Well, isn't Richard that part of the problem, you guys? Well, I interviewed Doris Kearns Goodwin after the election and on this podcast, and she basically said it. And I think Brian Stevenson talks about this a lot as well, being proximate. And part of it is geographical. I mean, that we have these these rural and exurban voters oftentimes. And people in these big cities, coastal cities, have very little interaction with people. I was having dinner with my husband on Friday night, and we were sitting next to a very nice couple from Memphis. And they recognized me despite the fact I had no makeup on and it looked really scary. And so we started <laughs> chatting. And this guy, we were talking about Trump, of course, because you can't go anywhere without, you know, there's no place that is safe. It, there's no Trump-free zone these days. <laughs> and he basically said, you know, I voted for Trump, and I was screaming at him at, uh, on the television saying, please shut up. He And I said, but do you, do you still support him? He said, yeah. He said, I have a family furniture business. Uh, the Chinese, the Asians are, are killing American manufacturing when it comes to furniture. The time it takes to build a new factory in this country is crazy. There are too many regulations. We want the best for our employees. And we really hope that he's going to be more hospitable to small businesses. And, you know, uh, my husband, who's in finance, basically says, you know, Donald Trump could do a lot that's good for the economy. Would you concede that there are some positive things that he could do and maybe some some corrections from overregulation that might have been put in place during the Obama administration? Yeah, I think there's plenty of positive things he could do. I mean, look, I, what's interesting about that conversation with the guy is that I think where we should be 
opposing Donald Trump or debating Donald Trump is on those issues, right? Because I could make a case that um, Obama's policies or liberal Democratic policies would do a better job of helping small businesses and bringing manufacturing back or educating people for the next generation of high-tech manufacturing, right? And so I think getting back to those, I think those arguments are probably the best way to actually persuade people yeah. and not, um, oh my God, did you see his tweet? He's awful and terrible and that's it. Because I think I think the bigger gap but in it, it, the bigger bubble here is between people who are super engaged with the media and consume media every day, every minute of the day. And that goes for people on the left and people on the right. And then many, many more Americans who are just very casual observers of the media and casual consumers of the media. And right. they are not paying as close attention to a lot of these debates as we are. And therefore, when they aren't as outraged about everything as Donald Trump does as we are, we're often like, well, aren't you paying attention? And it's like, well, no, people are busy. They're leading busy lives and they don't want to spend every five seconds trying to, like, correct Donald Trump's yeah, lies. And aren't a lot of these arguments or discussions very nuanced and, and complicated? You know, not everybody is reading The Economist where right. the whole issue was on globalization or automation. And, you know, they're, they're, I think one of the problems, and you all can certainly respond to this, uh, is I think President Obama had a hard time communicating in simple terms, what his policies would do. And you've heard this before. He was often sort of professorial and too, um, almost too sophisticated in the way he expressed himself. And I think, of course, you have the polar opposite in Donald Trump, uh, you know, in terms of how simplistic he is in, in explaining his positions. So how do you get even those two arguments out there and discussed in in a, an intelligent way? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think there's sort of there's two pieces to that. There's communicating the policies and then there's whether or not these policies, this consensus around economic policy has been accepted. Because what's interesting about what you're saying about this person you met at the restaurant is actually, you know, uh, Tommy and John had rolled their eyes, but it's actually similar to the kind of thing my dad says who had a factory um, and you know, d- no. There, see, there. I didn't roll your eyes at your dad. I like, well, I'm, no, no, no. I'm, I'm more mad that you accuse me of rolling my <laughs> eyes. That, that I say this the eyes have been sitting right here, looking straight ahead. Katie, I want you to know they've been great, and I was wrong. Okay? <laughs> um, but but what I was going to say is that you know, I feel like there's been this like you know, especially you know, Trump's actually adopted some of this Paul Ryan language around taxes and regulation, and there has been a really big devi- divisive debate in Washington for a long time on taxes and regulation. But what Trump came in on. Was, a, was actually kind of breaking up a consensus around things like immigration and trade that it turns out were incredibly resonant issues with people. And I think if there's one good thing that's coming out of what Trump is doing is, first of all, I think he's you know uh, 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 turning over a bunch of dogmas on the right, but also I think he's forcing Democrats to confront a lot of these policies, which you know I think Barack Obama, Democrats generally have talked a lot about a communications failure, and I think that's true. But I think what the Bernie Sanders rise, what Trump's rise is showing is there's actually bigger policy questions that we maybe need to answer in a different way. What are the Democrats going to do to get their mojo back, guys? I mean, I think it's going to start. I think it's it has to start from the grassroots. I think it's starting in a lot of these protests. I think it's starting with a lot of these town halls. Like, I do not think it starts in Washington with a lot of the leaders we have there. I think already a lot of the Democrats in Washington are playing catch up to what's going on around the country. I think that's a good thing because I think if we're going to reinvent the party, reinventing it from outside of Washington is better than doing it from inside Washington. And also, that's actually, I think, ultimately what bothered me about that article you referenced to bring it back, which is, look, Hollywood people you know, sounding off about love Trump's hate. Like, I think that that can be useless. But to <laughs> conflate that with an incredibly 
exciting and inspiring uh, moment of activism and protest and people are going town halls. I think that's wrong, and I think that's um, uh, 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 too broad a brush. You know, not not a not a precise enough tool because I think that this activism. Um, whether or not there are some protesters who go too far and say things that maybe bother some people, on the whole, has been the few one of the only things that has successfully taken the microphone away from Donald Trump. It is funny you have like on the on the na- on the national level you have Democrats with like simplistic slogans like "Love Trump's Hate," and then at these town halls you have average voters with incre- with an incredibly sophisticated <laughs> understanding of the Affordable Care Act, asking their congressmen questions about lifetime limits and caps and stuff like that, and it's it's really inspiring to see that. And it's also a lesson that, you know, people know a lot more than just the people are more than the simplistic well, slogans that, that we You know, I remember watching those town halls after that summer when President Obama first yeah. introduced the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, I think it was a very organized effort to protest the, this this program, remember? And people would be like on page 38, paragraph two, you state. So I think that our our, our People at those town halls following that model that we saw early on in the Obama presidency, you think? So far, yeah. I mean, so far it looks like there's a very active, very well-organized, very well-educated, respectful campaign to go to these town halls to demand that members of Congress hold them and to ask some very specific questions, both about the Affordable Care Act but also sort of the Russia scandal and other things going on. So it seems like that playbook is being followed Although I do think these town halls have gotten shy of being quite as intense or caustic as maybe the Tea Party ones were back in the day. But that was because those people legitimately thought that there were going to be death panels and and things that were lies. Well, I remember watching those and thinking how woefully uneducated the members of Congress were when they faced their constituents. It was shocking to me. Shocking. Was it to you? No. no, look, we, I, I just, you know, look, uh, um, approval rating of Congress amongst the American people is somewhere around 10 percent. Approval rating of Congress among people who have worked at Congress is about zero percent. <laughs> you know, we know the, we know these people and it's the worst the closer you get. Oh, Some of them are great. That's lovely. That's so depressing. But what so what so. Oh, OK, so we got we have the, the educated people at town hall meetings who have people protesting. So what is this realistically going to accomplish? I read David Brooks a couple of days ago, and he said, basically, there's nothing that really can be done for the next four years. I mean, what do you think? What 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 is the road forward in your view for people who oppose Donald Trump? The midterms think- don't look super promising. No, see, I would just, I think that the midterms do. I think there's, uh, Democrats need 24 seats to take the House back. I think there were something like 30 seats where uh, Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump in a district where a Republican is sitting in the district right now. So I think that's the first target. And um, But the Senate lo- Senate looks pretty dubious. Senate looks, Senate's tough. Senate's tough. I don't think we can win the Senate back because I think you can pick off at best, you could pick off Dean Heller in Nevada and Jeff Flake in Arizona at best. And then you're still a couple – you're basically got a tied Senate at that point. And we have so a lot of Democrats to defend, seems like too. The, yeah, the, yeah, the best case scenario is a tied Senate and then the Democrats taking the House back. But if the Democrats take the House back, then they have subpoena power. Then they can investigate. Then they can legislatively stop a lot of Do- Donald Trump's domestic policies. And, so it would be huge. And when I say hold Trump accountable, I mean impeachment, but I don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go there. I mean, I think you can. I don't think it's a good idea to like throw around the word impeachment unless there's an impeachable offense that no, you're there. Are, well, are there? I, I don't know that we know yet, but I don't. I do think 
no one should discount how unbelievably distracting these ongoing investigations are going to be. I mean, you know, depending on who you read, there are multiple FBI investigations going on on a variety of Trump associates or aides or or what have you. And this White House is going to be more bogged down than they could ever possibly imagine. And it, it's just begun. And, and possibly for good reason. I mean, it might not just be a distraction. <laughs> right. Very, seemingly for good reason. In, yeah. all, in all seriousness, I think— Holding them accountable means investigating, means uh, means actual hearings, means doing the job that people like Jason Chaffetz and Paul Ryan refuse to do. Um, whether or not there's grounds for removing Donald Trump, I don't think we can say yet. Well, what do you think the Democrats should do in uh, in Congress, the people you hold in such high regard? Should they do what <laughs> what to Trump, what the GOP did to Barack Obama? I mean, I think they should oppose every policy they disagree with, which seems to be many. You know, I mean, I don't think he has put for, like if if uh, if the Paul Ryan repeal and replace plan, which basically just like takes Medicaid and uh, healthcare subsidies away from millions of people is the plan that absolutely they should oppose it. You know, I think that every time a plan comes up or a proposal or a policy comes up, Democrats should decide, you know, would you support it on the merits? Right. But and should, it doesn't should, seem. Should they pick the, their battles? In other words, I mean, should they put up a fight against Neil Gorsuch? Because if they. If they really do that, it's going to pretty much hand Donald Trump a big fat victory, is it not? I think he's going to get Gorsuch on regardless. Yeah. Because uh, he's got the votes. But I do think, I, look, I think hearings are important for Gorsuch, which is what Merrick Garland didn't get. And I think let's hear him out. Let's ask him really tough questions. And if it seems like he's a judge that's not in the mainstream, which we believe Merrick Garland was, then vote against him. Also, and if you do think he's in the mainstream, then vote for him. In the mainstream. Know? I mean, like, that's, that's – whether or not Democrats should vote to confirm him is shouldn't ha- – will really ultimately have nothing to do with whether or not he's in the mainstream. They've already made up their minds, and it's totally a political decision. The thing I would say about that political decision that's important to me is we need to give people a reason to vote for Democrats. And there's a lot of people out there to, that want yeah. to see that Democrats are fighting. And the fact that Gorsuch will, Gorsuch will get on no matter what is almost beside the point, like – Showing that we're willing to fight is going to get people excited about sending more Democrats to the House and to the Senate. Let's talk about Hillary Clinton, if we could. John, I'm just curious. You know, I heard so many people say if the Hillary we saw in in the concession speech would have surfaced more during the course of the campaign, it might have turned out differently. Does that gall you when people make that observation? What do you think, Lovett? Uh, I think people have been saying that if only the Hillary that showed up after she lost— uh, were around, she would have won. They said that um, after her 2008 uh, defeat. I think they said that again again this time. I think that there is some truth to it. Um, I think that there's some truth to the fact that there's some kind of a a political instinct that she has and that the people around her have over the years that has nothing to do with an individual team because it repeats over and over again that there's a kind of um, control that ultimately is self-defeating. And I think that's absolutely true. Look, so is that is what not... ha- Do you think what, that's what went wrong? She was too cautious and controlling? Or I the campaign that's... itself, that sort of, I, I said, that sounded over-personalized, but that that the, the sort of ethos of the campaign was too cautious and controlling? Look, you mentioned that about the concession speech. People have said that about, they said that about John Kerry after his concession speech. They said it about Mitt Romney after his concession speech. They said it about Al Gore after his concession speech. They said it about John McCain. 
They said about John McCain, there are a certain brand of politicians who are too cautious during a campaign and it is not in their and are less cautious after the campaign's over. And that is because they run with an overwhelming fear of losing. And that fear of losing makes them more cautious and calculated sometimes when that's not who they are. My sister was um, running for lieutenant governor of Virginia with Mark Warner when she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And and, uh, she was a real rising star in the Democratic Party. And a lot of people said she was going to be the first female governor. And unfortunately, tragically, she passed away. But she told me when she was running for state senate, et cetera, she said, when you run for office, you have to be willing to lose. And I think what she meant is, it sounds so simple, is that you have to be true to yourself and to your core values and principles and let the chips fall where they may. It's it's absolutely right. It's so it, it is it does sound simple, but it is incredibly hard and a lot of people don't do that. Yeah, I mean it's just this people it's like every, there's so many advisors and there's so many polls and you know, but ultimately people don't make a decision based on like how you met 10 different metrics. You have to get them to vote for you. You as a person have to get someone else to vote for you. And look, I think ultimately it's actually probably not that helpful to to worry about what Hillary Clinton's individual liabilities were when we need to figure out who the next person is and how they're going to win. Um and the truth is, everything mattered in this campaign. You know, we lost by, what, 100,000 votes across three states. Comey mattered. Uh, the email mattered. The, the, the hacks mattered. The leaks mattered. Everything mattered. Um, uh, but uh, well, what about that, what about a, yeah. a coherent message to blue-collar Democrats? I know you you all have said that there was that message, but somehow it just didn't come through. And saying, go to my website, just doesn't cut it, fellas. No, I agree. I, I mean, I, look, I, I think that's fair. And I, I do think that it's worth— it's worth examining this campaign because, you know, I I don't want us to overlearn problems that may or may not have been specific to Hillary Clinton and her campaign and apply them too broadly to Democrats and, and overthink sort of needing to segment the population of the United States and reach out to X, Y, or Z voter. That said, I, I think the bigger problem we all made was the lesson of Bernie Sanders and of Donald Trump was that every voters across the country were screaming, we are sick and tired of Washington. And then we handed them someone that they've been seeing in Washington for 30 years as a nominee. And that was just summarily rejected on a million questions that are probably values-based. Do you think so Bernie Sanders would have beaten Donald Trump? Yeah, uh, we, yeah, we talk about this a lot. It's, uh, it's the, uh, look, Listen yes. to these dodges, artful no, dodges. No, I'll say yes. I, 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 yes. My position is yes. My position is but Bernie would have won. I, I say yes, but I hate counterfactuals yeah. because it's so like evidence-free for right, saying right. <laughs> but I have, this, say. I have this feeling now that he would have yeah and, and look we've talked about this before like I, and this is actually goes back again to that article like liberals aren't helping Trump but liberals do need to think very carefully about the language we use and the way we talk to people that are really suffering and I think that that was a failure not of the Hillary Clinton campaign but of democratic politics generally but I think um, that I think you risk it at, at perpetuating that because I think there's something patronizing and dismissive about some of the approaches that are being taken by progressives in fighting Donald Trump that you have to be aware of and, and um, you know, just in some ways stay away from where it's, it's almost class warfare, I think, that we're seeing. Do you guys? Yeah, I mean, we sell patronizing and dismissive by the pound here on uh, Pod Save <laughs> America. Part of our brand. <laughs> no, I, 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 Proudly, you're totally, apparently. Yeah, no, look, you're, you're absolutely right. A good message is inclusive and disciplined and proactive and positive and focused on the future. And it's a lot easier and more fun to criticize the the dust up of the day. Also, we've, we've noticed like small things. We've talked about this where uh, Democrats often say, uh, you know, 
the working class feels left behind by the last 20 years of inequality and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, they don't feel left behind. They, <laughs> they were. have been left behind. Right. You know, but it's like it's little comments like that that are more, like I said, they're more it's analyzing people as opposed to advocating for people. Sort of that anthropological th- approach you referred to right. earlier. And I think and I think one thing Bernie Sanders does really well is he advocates for people in a real simple way and it's not quite and and it it's ideology aside here right yeah. it is just it is speaking to people's real frustrations and anxieties and it's also by the way it's not being too smart for our own good you know complicated uh, policies that we're trying to sell. You know, people want good health care. You know, they want simple, elegant solutions to problems that they can understand. And I think a lot of sort of democratic insidery, the conversation got very complicated. It got very much like um, like a, I don't know, like a policy like paper, a, like a yes, white paper. Like a lot, yes. Like I remember, you know, there was all that t- talk during the campaign, like, We've got so many more pages of white papers than that dumb guy, Donald Trump. It's like, if I ever hear anyone brag about the length of a white paper again, I'm going to lose it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, one thing that, like, you you mentioned earlier that people did call Obama aloof or, you know, professorial and all these things. The one thing that I always noticed about him, because I I spent a year with him in Iowa watching him at literally in backyards and every Iowa cliche you can imagine I will spout. But, like, the thing that was true about him and about the First Lady was that, it was more recent that they were paying off student loans than that they had become famous politicians. And like that, that reality allowed them to connect with people in a way that was authentic. Right. And that is perishable, right? Because you spend long enough in Washington being told you're great and everything is brilliant and things get paid for by so-and-so at Bistro B or wherever you're going for lunch. Like you, you get lost. Great steak frites there. <laughs> <laughs> what about so so what happens when when Donald Trump doesn't or do you think he will bring manufacturing back? I mean, first of all, only 13% of the jobs lost in manufacturing between 2000 and 2010 were lost to trade. The rest were lost to automation. I read an interesting piece today that said Bill Gates wants to start taxing companies to slow you know, for their use of robotics mm-hmm. to slur, sort of slow the progression this transformation we're witnessing from an industrial to a technological society i mean a do you think he's going to bring manufacturing back and b what happens if he doesn't go yeah i mean look the most frustrating part of donald trump's you know vision that he's selling people is that it's largely fiction Right. Is that 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 a lot of that most manufacturing jobs aren't coming back. Right. That Now, that's something that, you know, Bill Clinton was saying back in 1992 when he was running for president. He was honest with people about that. Barack Obama used to be honest with people about that. Now, that's not there are companies that are, you know, we saw this over the last eight years. There's a trend towards insourcing where a lot of these companies are moving production back to America. So that's good. But it's still a tiny, like you said, it is a tiny fraction of the jobs that we've lost. The The largest challenge we have as a country that we have to talk about is and Obama was telling us this when he was on the podcast too, is automation, right? right? Like, but what are we going to do? why did anybody talk about that during the campaign? It infuriated me. Uh, you know, uh, well, one, they should have. Two, it's a complicated issue that, it, you know, I don't think anybody not... knows the answer. That's why I think they didn't that's, talk about that's, it. That is I think, huge. I think no one knowing the answer where the next generation of jobs is going to come from is left an opening for someone like Trump and other— To lie about it. Yeah, I mean, look, we, that's if, right. if, if the solutions of the center-left and the center-right are not going to answer the problems of regular people, it's going to open the door to monsters. And but it has. I, I would it just has. say, we— we all should be rooting for Donald Trump's success because this is the biggest challenge we're going to face. It's going to get worse. It's going to get harder. 
I hope to God he can figure out a way to bring back jobs. Are you really the rooting reason, for Donald Trump's success? I am. The re, on the on a policy level, but the reason on I don't this, have a lot manufacturing. of the reason I don't have any, <laughs> but, but the reason I don't have a lot of hope that he's really going to work on this and make progress is that he filed for re-election five hours after he was sworn in, and this weekend he hold a campaign rally. And the guy loves the crowds and the big promises and the bluster and bravado, and we have not seen him spend a lot of time at the White House getting to work doing stuff. And yes, he can make press releases and repackage announcements from companies that had already pledged to create some sort of jobs here in the United States. But like, it, it's a it's governing by press release. There's not a dedicated, thoughtful process in place no, to he, actually fix it. And this. even that two, is kind of a Band-Aid, although he is very, totally. very good at making hay over small accomplishments like the carrier jobs, right? great yeah. at that. And and that was actually an incredibly effective part of his pitch. So So he's got this... He's got this narrative he's writing about how he's renegotiating these little things and he's going to renegotiate the deals, right? That's not going to solve America's job problem. Then, he, then you know, they go back and forth. You know, some days they're talking about some trillion-dollar infrastructure prog- project. The next day you hear from the Hill that that's not possible. Um, you know, that's actually something that could uh, make a difference. Of course, these are the same Republicans who fought tooth and nail against a Democratic stimulus measure when the president came in and when we were in crisis. I'm looking the other policy is, uh, you know, tariffs and like starting trade wars, which is is certainly not going to solve the issue because that's just going to raise prices on poor and working class people. Right. You know, it's that's so that's that's not an answer either. So his answers to the problem of manufacturing, which is seems to be like threatening individual companies, um, promising an infrastructure bill that's that hasn't materialized yet and throwing up tariffs are not, you know, policy wise are not great solutions. And, and just one more point, too, that, that right now the economy is growing and adding jobs. That won't necessarily be true over the next four years. You know, he is sort of riding a, a long trend of job growth, which he can say, oh, look, a new factory here, a new factory there. Um, but at a certain point, you know, it's live yeah. by the polls, die by the polls. Taking credit for the stock market is a dangerous game, buddy. Right. It goes up and it goes down. <laughs> Why we didn't do it. Yeah. Well, let, let me I ask mean, you guys <laughs> about uh, President Obama's relationship with President Trump. Uh, do they talk? I mean, you guys probably know this. Do I can't imagine President Obama being like, yo, Donald, let's talk, given some of the stuff that Trump has been saying in recent days about, you know, he inherited a real mess, blah, 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 right? I I think President Obama is better at brushing that stuff off than his hack aides who are on the phone right now are, you know, and I I think he can sort of see through that and try to have a constructive relationship because they, you know, when they're alone in the Oval Office, like nobody's tweeting, make America great again. You know, it's a conversation about how hard the job is going to be. And I think he's tried to have a constructive conversation with him about the realities of how hard this is, the things he thinks he should protect and preserve, you know, the political traps, um, the challenges of building a good team. So I think He's really tried to help him in a constructive way. Clearly, I, He hasn't really popped off in response to any of the provocations you've mentioned. Well, so let me ask you, though, at positive. some point, does he become a voice of those who are opposing Donald Trump? And is that how he's is that how he becomes an effective former president? I mean, I think on uh, on big issues, he may. I think that it's his belief and it's been his belief long before Trump that the most important thing he can do is sort of inspire the next generation of voices to go out and lead, right? Because he knows that he's not going to run for office again. He's not going to be president again. But we do need leaders who aren't afraid to stand up and speak out and and, and take up the fight. Okay, that's a perfect segue to my next question. Sure. Exciting. Who are – this is going very seamlessly, isn't it, you guys? (laughs) You're very good at this. That's why. So who are the the future stars of the Democratic Party and really for maybe a more moderate Republican Party as well if that exists? 
So there's Tommy, there's John, I'm here. Um, uh, so we'll start there. I think that's an important group. But um, beyond that, I'm actually not sure. I don't really follow politics. <laughs> Kamala Harris out in Cal- California's got the maybe the best bench for the party, period. Garcetti. Garcetti. Kamala Harris. Um, Gavin Newsom. Yeah. And then Jason Kander. Jason Kander, friend of the pod. Jason Kander, is he the one that did the great ad where he put together the yes. automatic weapon blindfold? Blindfolded, yes. yeah, and he lost, but he's still a very uh, strong and uh, much followed progressive voice, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah, and he did so much better in that race uh, than he had any right to do. He's a card carrying badass. We also, you know, obviously Elizabeth <laughs> Warren is like a, an emotional leader. I want to be a card carrying badass. I, I think you have been. I think for you a while. are. <laughs> you just have to. You just have to apply. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Anybody can get one. It's not, it's like actually just like a it's a scam, really. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who else? Who else do you see as um, and and what about? Well, go ahead. Tell me, and then I have a follow-up. Go ahead. Who else? Uh, who else do we say? I like Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Who's yeah. I interviewed DNC him. Chair. What about Michael Bennett? Love Michael Bennett. Uh-huh. I, I, I remember seeing him at a fundraiser once when I was traveling with with uh, Obama, and I like wasn't paying attention because it was a long day, and I just heard this speech. I'm like, who's delivering that speech in there? And it was Michael Bennett. The weird thing is, you know, you start to, you think of these politicians as like, people who are adults in your senior and then all of a sudden there's this generation of leaders like Jason Kander or like Seth Moulton who's a yeah, member I, of Congress out of Massachusetts Seth Moulton's great. yeah who are like you know 35 the next generation of leaders that are what that ab- are really really impressive what about Cory Booker and Andrew Cuomo do you see them running in 2020 Booker I could see yeah I don't know if Cuomo I feel like he's got a lot of baggage who doesn't? Who doesn't? Let's, Katie, we don't like to criticize people until after they've been on the podcast. So you're kind of getting us in trouble. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I basically sounded like an uninformed voter there. What about someone outside the political realm? You know, we've seen with Donald Trump, a businessman can get elected. What about someone like Howard Schultz? And I know people sort of have jokingly suggested somebody like Tom Hanks. I mean, do you see this opening the door to a new breed of not, you know, the non-politician running for president. I would say that we should probably not try to learn too many lessons like that from Donald Trump, who is, I think, a unique figure. Um, but uh, I think the more the merrier. I mean, if there are people who are smart and charismatic and have good ideas and are expert, I mean, I don't know about famous actors. Um, what about us. Mark Cuban? I thought you were going to say Zuckerberg. <laughs> oh, well, what about either of them? Actually, let's discuss both hmm. of them. Let's start with Mark Cuban. He appeared at that all-star celebrity game in New Orleans on Saturday in a jersey emblazoned with number 46. I think Donald Trump then tweeted that he wasn't smart enough or has in recent <laughs> days. Mark Cuban isn't smart enough to be president. I mean, honestly, you guys cannot make this shit up, can you? It's ridiculous. No. Am I, I mean, allowed to say that on a podcast? Yeah, you, know, you can yeah. say whatever we you have want. We an explicit rating on yeah, our we podcast. Have that e. Okay, we have that e. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I like, I like Cuban just clearly Cuban gets under Trump's skin. So as long as Cuban's out there doing that, I think that's great. And what about Zuckerberg? (laughs) I mean, I just don't, like, I think what we've all been hitting on in this conversation is that authenticity has become coin of the realm. And I I don't know that Zuckerberg seems to be approaching this as cautiously as humanly possible. Uh, Yeah. It's like Mark Zuckerberg seems like he's spent 30 years in Washington when he speaks. (laughs) The way forward is not 6,000 word letters. It's, you know... (laughs) Talking to people. I, like do you think he's charismatic like enough? I mean, do you think he's charismatic well, enough? Because I think the thing is with Trump, you know, like him or not, 
for whatever reason, his bravado and his bluster and his kind of unconventional way of speaking. Trump is charismatic and he is charming and he is funny. And we ignore that at our peril. I've been, I've always felt that he has a great sense of humor when he brings up his if you watch his rallies, look, it's hard to put it aside because he's racist and despicable and he's lying all the time. But if that's not how you other approach than it, that. Other, well, right, other than that, how is the play? But the uh, uh, but uh, but but if you could put that aside or if you didn't approach it with that sense of of who he is um he's great he's an entertaining guy that rally brings up a guy everybody's laughing he's like we know our people everybody it's he's it's he's a he's an entertainer he's a showman and it works um seems like he's running the white house like an episode of the apprentice too right i mean kind of encouraging people to compete and to i don't know that's sort of what i've heard from people who are covering this white house didn't he say it was a well-oiled machine or what did he say that's what it looks like and uh, but but it seems like I mean, what do you guys hear about what's going on at, at sixteen hundred Pennsylvania uh, Avenue? Exactly that. I mean, I, I think that's his, his Achilles heel is that competence and the ability to run a, a, the biggest organization in the world is 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 what the job is, and he has shown no capacity to do that. He's put in a place a, a team that's over its head at best, if not constantly knifing each other. Um, And I think that there will be repercussions. We haven't seen them yet because nothing really bad has happened. But it will because... The world's you know, a dangerous world's place. A dangerous things happen. Place. Yeah. I heard he doesn't really have a schedule. He sort of wanders around a lot. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> I don't, Reporters tell us that, you know, in years... Many reporters who I've spoken to never ran into Barack Obama in the hallway, and they'll just see Trump wandering down to lower press, or they'll walk into to the press secretary's office, and he'll just be sitting there with the chief of staff watching cable TV. And that's just, it's not a good use of time. Hmm. Well, before we go, because I know you guys have given me more time than you schedule, which I really appreciate. You've given us more time. I know, I know you all are busy. But let, let's talk about, with, with Crooked Media, are you trying to convert people to the cause, or are you just preaching to the choir? We want to do a lot of converting here. We want to do a lot of brainwashing. <laughs> uh, no, we do. We think, uh, like I said, I, I would love this company to uh, expand its audience, right, and to reach more people who are, who might, especially people who might not have been as engaged in politics as they want to be now, right? Because there's a, like you said, you can't escape Trump, right? We are in a moment in, in, in our history now where more people are paying attention to politics than they have been in quite some time. And for that new audience that's tuning in, you know, that that's who we want to reach. And I think mostly they're younger too. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, 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 I think there's arming people with information and resources. And I think that's hopefully a role we can play. Um, I think that there's taking somebody from being less engaged to more engaged. And then I think mm-hmm. there is also room for people who may not have heard a kind of, I don't know, I mean, look, I, it sounds like branding, but like kind of a no bullshit conversation that maybe has a liberal perspective, but might be accessible to somebody who isn't sure what their politics are, maybe thinks they're a Republican or maybe has been conservative in the past. But Do you think this is going to translate to a higher voter turnout? Because I find that one of the most depressing aspects is the fact that so many people didn't vote or voted for, you know, threw their vote away by voting for Gary Johnson. Although yep. I saw Bill Weld the other night, and he said 75% of their voters were actually Trump voters. I'm not sure if that's okay, true. Okay, Bill. I know. Sure. So anyway, but do you think that that more people will get out and vote? Because of all the people protesting, I'd like to walk around and ask all of them if they voted. I think it's entirely incumbent upon the Democrats to put forward a candidate that inspires people and gets them out there. Because I think we did learn that demonizing someone, even when they deserve it, is not an incentive to get people out. And we need to inspire them and get them 
to the polls. And Barack Obama did that incredibly well. And we need to find that next leader that can help do that. Yeah. And then, by the way, even before 2020, I think the single biggest challenge that Democrats have is taking this energy, this enthusiasm for protest, this fear and this anger and this uh, anxiety and translating it into votes in 2018 to win the House so that we can begin the process of actually having a government that holds these people accountable. Do you think there's any appetite for Hillary Clinton to run again? We've already started hearing rumblings about that, that she's positioning herself to to go for it in 2020. Thoughts? Literally none. I would be shocked if shocked. I would be more shocked than Trump. I don't winning. think she would want to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, also, I mean, <laughs> but, but she would, can, she, I, she would, she would punch the staffer yeah, in the face who recommended that she I do don't that. think that's, I don't, I, first of all, I can't believe that's real. I think that probably if this group of people were being honest, we'd say that we would be very much opposed to that because we need new people. We need a new voice, somebody that can challenge Trump from the outside. So as fascinating as you three are, don't you want to ask me some questions about my podcast and why we're doing this and yada, yada, yada? Katie, tell us about your podcast and why you're doing it. (laughs) Well, thanks for asking, John. You know, I thought it would be really interesting to have these kinds of conversations. First of all, I'm able to express myself during a podcast in a way that I can't in any other venue. We love that. And I think people are hungering for deeper, more kind of meaningful and spontaneous conversations. And I think that that is what a podcast affords. And people seem to respond to it. I was buying bananas at this little neighborhood market the other day. And this woman came up to me. She said, I can't believe it. And she had her phone. She said, look what I'm listening to. I was like, do, 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 do. That's really weird. So it's Uh, fun. No, we 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 enjoy the 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 form of podcasting is uh, it's, um, it's a medium that lets you do a lot that uh, others don't. Yeah, and it's intimate, and like I feel like I know I listen to podcasts, and it feels like you're kind of sitting at the table with the people that are talking. So it's kind yeah, of a different definitely. relationship. I feel like we're having a slumber party. That's right. I am in I am in sweatpants, <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that doesn't have to do with the party. This was really really fun. I love talking to you all, and I think you know it's. I don't know if you've found this to be so, but. You can't really go anywhere where we're not talking about the state of the country and what's going on in Washington and President Trump. And um, I find it still endlessly fascinating. And why do you think that's the case? That that and I don't think it's just polit. You know, people who love politics either. Do you? I think it's a mixture of uh, fear and fascination. Yeah, I mean, look, <laughs> I, you know, I, I the fact that this happened this way, I think, is. Incredibly, I think everybody's surprised and everybody's still trying to figure it out. And uh, I think certainly, uh, you know, I happen to think we're in the middle of a national crisis. And I think that that crisis is if there's one good thing coming out of it is that people are talking to each other and trying to figure it out and thinking about politics in new ways. And it's kind of you even see this with journalists. You see like people kind of getting back to first principles, you know, like what do I do? Why do I care about it? What is important to me? I mean, that's part of the reason we did this company, because the election of Donald Trump, I think, forced us to confront what we cared about and what we if we cared about it enough. Do you think there's a risk that Democrats are just repeating Hillary's mistakes by attacking Donald Trump and not coming up with a clear and cohesive message for their own sort of mission? I think that could be a risk. Uh, I don't know if it's happening yet, but I think if we do not have a coherent vision to sell voters in 2018 and 2020, um, then yeah, then we very well could repeat those mistakes. So I think it's important that we do that. And something we've talked about a lot here is that, you know, I think that we, that especially, and this is the point that you're making about kind of talking just to ourselves. Um, uh, uh, it can't just be about how bad Trump is. And, and it can't just be about how he insults our values, our norms, that the way we think politics should sound, vulgarity and all the rest. It has to be about how Trump's policies will hurt you. 
right? How it will actually affect your day-to-day life. And we need to make sure we're constantly talking, not just about how we have the right values, how we care about freedom of the press, how we care about these institutions and norms, but why they matter and why they'll make your life better if you follow well, the policies I, you I, care about. I alluded about. to this question earlier, and I don't think you all really answered it. At what? How long will it be? I guess I think we we veered off into a whole conversation about manufacturing. But how long will it take before people who think that Donald Trump voted for him because they believed he would make their lives demonstratively better, uh, how long will it take before they say, hey, you have to pay the piper, we voted for you and our lives aren't better? Or do you think that he'll take enough incremental steps and their lives will be sufficiently improved? I think the odds are that he will hurt them because they will not necessarily realize that the Affordable Care Act was benefiting them or that certain tax policies will be changed that will overly benefit the wealthy. So I I, I can't put a ballpark time frame on this because some of it is going to have to do with, you know, the the implementation of policy and, and the way people get their news about it. But I think that what he's going to do is going to cost him electorally. I genuinely do. Think I will that. say that uh, elections help focus the mind. So I think when we get to 2018, if uh, there has not been any policy that helps working people out of this White House, uh, I think people will respond accordingly at the polls. Yeah, I mean, it's not a camp, you know, being president isn't a campaign. You actually have to do things. You can't just complain. You can't just whine. You can't just pick a target. People will actually see what happens in their world. And I know you aren't betting men, but do you think he's going to make it all four years? And maybe you are. I don't know. I don't know you guys well enough. We are out of the prediction business. All right. Because we suck at it. Because <laughs> I still think Hillary's going to win. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a nice way to end this conversation. Yeah, really good. fun talking to you guys. Yeah, you can can, can, we, do you, this, can so we do this again in six months and yeah, talk yeah. about we'll sort in. of what we'll happened, has happened to here. journalism, what's happened to policy, and what's happened to the Democrats and the Republicans? For Ho- sure. We'll call you from the gulag. It, yeah, right. If one of us can get use our phone call of the day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This was really fun. Thanks so much, you guys. Take Thanks. care. Bye-bye. Brian, you were listening to our whole conversation, which went on a little longer, I think, than they anticipated. What did you think of some of the things they had to say? Well, I, I thought one thing was very smart, which is that they're now out of the prediction business. I think journalists can fall into that trap at their peril. And I thought, Katie, you made a really interesting point about where the media should go from here in the face of this unrelenting assault from both the right in general and Donald Trump in particular, which is less focus on tweets and style and more on facts and substance. And I think that is how the media responds. I mean, I have always thought that Fox News gets it half right with their tagline, that the press should be fair but not balanced, that if one side is right on the facts and the other side is wrong, it is not biased for the media to take the side of the facts. And I think that's what the press should do now. I think what what might be an interesting idea, Brian, is that during a presidential press conference or even an interview with a surrogate for Donald Trump, to have someone in a control room where a fact checker can put on the screen immediately when a statement is made if, in fact, it is true or false. I don't think you do the true, but you would do the false. For example, when Donald Trump claimed during his press conference that he won more electoral votes than anyone since Ronald Reagan, Peter Alexander fact-checked that immediately. I'm sure he was looking on his phone and figuring out the numbers for all the presidents who had more electoral votes than Donald Trump. But if you had someone in a control room saying right away 
this is incorrect. These are the facts. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I think live, real-time fact-checking is challenging because sometimes it takes a little while to dig up the facts. But if you can do it on something quickly like that, it would be very powerful. Like when Donald Trump said over the weekend that there was a terrorist attack last night in Sweden, which was totally wrong— Somebody could have fact-checked that at the time. I mean, I remember watching that press conference when he said the thing you mentioned about the electoral margin and thinking, yeah, that's great. You know, he's gotten the biggest electoral margin of any president since Reagan, except for George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. So that would have been a good fact-check at the time. Let's talk about what the Democrats are going to do moving forward. I think uh, the, the hosts of Pot Save America and the people behind a new company called Crooked Media as you said earlier, Brian, are trying to harness this sort of wave of activism that we're seeing almost on a daily basis out in the streets, on social media, wherever. Where do you think that's headed? And and what do you think they can actually do to shape the narrative or how this activism is actually employed? Well, it's interesting. If you look at history, often when one party moves to an ideological extreme, the other party follows suit. That is, they don't fill in the vacuum in the center and reach out to all those people who feel alienated by the ideological party in power. Instead, they kind of, they're so angry and outraged, they they move in the other direction and they rally their own base. And I think the Democrats are at risk of doing precisely that right now, seating the center. And I think the the major challenge for the Democrats moving forward is figuring out both how to rile up their base and how to reach people who abandoned them in the last election. And what about the Republicans on Capitol Hill so far, other than John McCain and Lindsey Graham? They seem to be supporting Donald Trump. At some point, do you think they're going to get to a place where they say, you know, we're not so jiggy with that? Yeah, I think that point would have to be when Trump's support drops below 85 or 90 percent among members of his own party, because you got to remember that most Congress people are more concerned about primaries these days than they are about general elections. And then I think the water would be a little warmer for more Republicans to uh, to wade in and join McCain and Graham in criticizing Trump. But Katie, you know, I wanted to ask you about this uh, manifesto that Mark Zuckerberg wrote that's gotten a lot of attention, saying that civil discourse depends on a strong press, that we should support the news industry. What was your reaction to that? Obviously, I am very much in favor of a free press. And I think Thomas Jefferson said, if you gave me a choice between a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I choose the latter or something. I'm paraphrasing. So we're TJ, not. We're my not founder <laughs> of my university. So we're not enemies, the American people, Katie. No, I I don't think we are. But you know, how do we convince the American people or a certain segment of the population that that's certainly not true? So it's a very challenging time for for the media, and uh, I think that it's smart for for us to band together and try to figure this out for the good of the country. I worry that we're headed toward the kind of bifurcated media future that you describe in which— I don't think we're headed. I think we're smack in the middle of it, Brian. Yeah, people don't even agree on the facts anymore. I mean, people, you know, have said we used to agree on the facts and disagree on our views and opinions. Now we disagree on the facts themselves, and that makes it very hard for us to kind of come together to solve any problem. Well, here's a fact. We're out of time, Brian, but it's (laughs) been fun. Doing a debriefing with you after uh, 
chatting with the fellas from Pod Save America. We'll see you next time, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Bye, Brian. Bye, Katie. Thanks to the lovely and talented Gianna Palmer for producing our show, to Jared O'Connell, who's also lovely and talented, for mixing and engineering. <laughs> now, damn it, I'm going to have to say everyone is lovely and talented. So are you, Ryan Connor, for your engineering assistance in Los Angeles. Also, thanks to our social media maven, Allison Bresnick, who helps spread the word in such a creative way about our podcast, and to Emily Bina for her part in producing the show. Mark Phillips, thank you so much for our very catchy theme music. It's still in my head, as always. Katie Couric, Mitch Semmel, and I are the executive producers of this show. And remember, you can always email us at comments at couricpodcast.com. You can find me on social media, too. I'm Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram, katie.couric on Snapchat. Brian, you're on social media, too, right? Just Twitter, at GoldsmithB. You can join my tens of followers, people. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to ask you a big favor. I know we're not just saying this uh, as a t- as a final thought on our podcast, but we really would love you all to rate and review us on iTunes. Brian, tell everyone why that's so important. Well, it really helps more people to become aware of the show. The algorithms on Apple take into account how many people rate and review each show, the activity around it, and that helps to drive awareness across the uh, the tubes on the internet. So we really do appreciate um, all of you, not just telling us how much you like the show, but telling your friends and your family, if you appreciate the show, spreading the word to them as well. Brian, that was really moving and a little desperate, but (laughs) thank you very much for making the case for rating and reviewing. Anyway, don't forget to subscribe as well. And thanks for listening as always. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.